0: My next guest on Tea Time with me, Ali Munjak, is Dr Ron Daniels BEM from the UK Sepsis Trust. The Trust was 10 years old in March when the country went into lockdown. He shares the problems with being a service charity in a global pandemic and how a patient in intensive care changed his medical focus to find ways of treating sepsis. He is dedicated to fighting sepsis for patients and is also part of the Global Sepsis Alliance. It was World Sepsis Day on the 13th of September, so let's find out more. So welcome anyway to Tea Time with Ali And um, Obviously, you know, you have been involved in, in as a clinician, Some time with the Birmingham UK Trust, haven't you? The NHS Trust.
1: Yes, and I I think it's important to say that I don't represent University Hospitals Birmingham, I'm simply an employee of theirs, but it does allow me to see what's happening on the ground.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, let's we're not here today to talk about that, we're really here to talk about your involvement and the fact that you are the chief executive of the UK Sectors Trust. I mean, at the moment, I mean, it must be, you must be working overtime without extra funds during this global pandemic.
1: Well, absolutely. And I think it's important to note that across the charity sector, funding is down and it's down as much as 60% across the sector. Now, that has impact that varies according to the nature of the charity that it is. So, broadly speaking, there are within the healthcare setting, There are grant making charities, which typically have a large volunteer um, commitment and allocate grants, often to research studies. Now, the effect on those charities is that they are able to make fewer grants to research studies, and so fewer research studies are commissioned. The other broad type of charity in the healthcare setting is very service-led. So, like the UK Sepsis Trust, we support people affected, we educate health professionals, we work to influence policy. And the impact on those charities when we, when we um, receive reduced funds is, of course, our capacity to deliver those services to people is diminished.
0: And at a time like this, I mean, that's really, really not good, is it? I mean, you, you actually were the person that created the uh, sepsis six-point plan, weren't you, in 2017, which, you know, is a, is a huge holistic approach. I mean, do you feel at the moment that this is actually just sort of um not allowing you to follow through with uk sepsis trust
1: or so i, I think it's even bigger than that to be honest ali and I, I suppose i just thought to provide the background to the sepsis six, the treatment pathway we actually started it in 2006 and we've iterated it over time and it was in 2017 that uh, it received nice endorsement so um This is now in use in 37 countries, saving lives, or at least it was. And this is the concern we have. We've talked about COVID-19. Obviously, it's in the news. It's in the news today. It's been in the news for the last six months. The reality is that for a majority of people who become critically ill with COVID-19, certainly in high-income countries, they develop sepsis. This is the body's response to an infection and it can be triggered by a viral infection like COVID-19 as well as by a more normal pneumonia. And in fact, the World Health Organization and Dr. Tedros, their Director General, has uh, reinforced this in a statement. They have said that COVID-19 precipitates sepsis. So more than ever, people are needing our services. And as you allude to, If we can't deliver those services, we can't expand those services, then there's a huge need potentially being unmet.
0: I mean, is there because you're part of the Global Sepsis Alliance as well, aren't you? I mean, is there any help from the World Health Organization here for for charities such as yourself?
1: So the World Health Organization takes sepsis really seriously. They adopted a resolution on sepsis again in 2017 And we are in continued dialogue with them. In fact, we partnered in the delivery of a global online congress just a week or two ago. What we don't receive from the WHO or from any government agency in individual countries is significant funding to improve outcomes for sepsis or to support survivors.
0: Yes, which is not really um, useful, shall we say, helpful at the moment, is it?
1: Well, no, it's not. And I think, you know, again, a a bigger picture here. The government, the public are going to begin to find to their cost in the coming months, the duties that charities fulfil to support government and public services. The sector provides advice, provides treatment pathway, provides research, provides recommendations and provides support to people affected by all manner of healthcare problems. And if these charities no longer exist, or if they're effectively mothballed because of diminished income, then those provision of services you know think about Macmillan nurses and the very needful care that they offer people Marie Curie in the cancer setting it's similar in the sepsis and infection world with us with meningitis now and so forth those support services for people who are critically ill or chronically ill will be diminished
0: I mean you know you have really been a bit of a pioneer in dealing with this or you can't really call it a disease can you sepsis or is it how would you describe it? So
1: it's a syndrome, so it's a syndromic response to infection. So um, it is increasingly recognized as a disease but technically we call it a syndrome.
0: Right okay, I mean can you see a way forward with this? Can you see a way to adapt on trying to treat this with the situation given or you know is this just an impossible situation?
1: No, I don't think it is. I think this situation gives us a lot of opportunities. The public has never been as engaged in their own health as the public is now. The public is taking a real interest, understandably, in infectious disease. So the time is now for us to continue to work with the WHO to look at infectious disease, sepsis, infection prevention, antimicrobial resistance collectively, to begin to develop policies where we address all of these aspects of infection management together with pandemic preparedness in unified strategy. And when we begin to do that, then we can start to develop a strategic direction that encourages and embraces the need to prevent infection, to rapidly treat time-critical infection, but to do so in the context of proper antibiotic stewardship. And if we can get those three things correct, then we'll have much more re- resilient healthcare systems against future pandemics, as well as helping the many millions of people affected by sepsis every year in the meantime.
0: Would you say that you know, the, 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 the disease, COVID-19, um, has exacerbated, um, I suppose everybody's an individual, but do you see you know, more cases of sepsis with, with, that falls in line with COVID?
1: Well we saw very much fewer actually uh, during the peak of the pandemic so I've seen data from NHS England improvement to show that admissions with sepsis during the month of April were down 60% now 60% is a bit of a a nebulous number it might be more real to people if I say that 14,000 people less attended A&Es with sepsis during that one month than normally would what's happening to these people well of course, infection rates might have reduced a little as a consequence of social distancing, but they're not going to increase, reduce by anywhere near that number. So the likelihood is that many of these people will simply have deteriorated and possibly died at home.
0: Well, which is very sad, but I mean, there's no way of sort of, you know, counting numbers at the moment, is there or either, I suppose, you know, in the given situation. I mean, no, and this, this highlights the
1: difference between conditions like sepsis and cancer, heart attack, and stroke. For those latter conditions, there are national patient level registries, so we can really understand when numbers start to move. For sepsis, we rely at the moment on the use of administrative data, if you like, hospital coded data. They're hugely imperfect and they're not sensitive enough to allow us not only for To detect changes in the numbers of people presenting, but also to begin to understand what therapies work, what demographics are affected and so forth. So we need to get much better with data. And again, that was something the WHO were calling for last week.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, you know, getting much better with data surely lends time and resources, doesn't it, really? Which, you know, you probably don't have a great deal of at the UK Sexist Trust at the moment.
1: Well, it's certainly not something that a charity can take on alone. It's something that a charity has the skills to do, perhaps working as one of a number of willing stakeholders. But society can't afford not to do this. This is a condition that has a huge fiscal burden to the UK economy, as much as £15.6 billion every year. And if we have poor data, we're never going to understand it sufficiently to improve that burden. So it's not only the human burden, it's also, also the fiscal burden.
0: Yes, I mean, I mean, that seems to be the underlying, wow, crisis, isn't it, really? It's not just a health crisis, it's an economical crisis that has been created because of COVID.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if if, if recovery from COVID is anything like the literature, the scientific literature uh, dealing with recovery from sepsis, then, uh, you know, without wishing to alarm people, there are plenty of studies out there that show that only around two thirds of people of working age who develop sepsis are back back at work one year after the index episode. So this is something that carries huge burden to employers, to individuals, and to society as a whole. And, you know, although Our main drive is to reduce the human suffering and the human burden. It's difficult to completely disconnect that illness burden from the financial burden that individuals and society face.
0: Well, no, I mean, this is something that, you know, obviously, not just the UK government, but I mean, globally, every government in the world is, is, you know, drawn, you know, doing a fine balancing act, aren't they, between, you know, the economy and keeping everybody out of danger really, it's it's, it's a very difficult situation to be in isn't it? Well
1: absolutely and I think you know what's disappointed us in in certain respects is that governments also seem less able to communicate the concept of unintended consequence so it may well be that we protect people from contracting Covid-19, it may well be that we keep hospitals relatively empty so that we can cope with people with Covid-19 but what's happening to the mental health of our population during that time and what's happening to people with underlying disease. That might be chronic conditions. It might be people who've been being treated for cancer, for heart disease, for diabetes, whose chronic conditions and chances of long-term survival might diminish as a consequence, but also people with acute conditions like heart attack, stroke, sepsis. If people aren't presenting in a timely fashion, their long-term outcomes are going to be poor.
0: Because, you know, there is always after effects. I mean, we do know, I mean, I'm not talking about you, of course, you know, because you're part of the Royal College of Physicians and, you know, many more um, medical boards. But we do know that the one organ in our body that doesn't uh, regenerate is our heart, don't we?
1: Yeah, so organs that find it difficult to regenerate it, yes, the heart, although you can get a bit of what we call remodeling of the heart muscle fibres. So a big heart attack, it can damage a lot of heart muscle, but over time, the the rest of the heart muscle can compensate a little. The brain finds it really difficult to adjust, um, particularly as we age and later in life, any injury to the brain from any condition becomes more difficult to recover from and of course as we know from uh, people with uh, well primarily alcohol related but other liver disease the liver finds it difficult to regenerate after an injury so any of these conditions which cause if you like an interruption in blood supply and oxygen supply to the major organs can affect any one of those organs and that becomes difficult to recover from
0: and that's more what more than often sepsis does doesn't it
1: yeah we describe sepsis people have heard of heart attack obviously a stroke you might uh, think of as a brain attack it's the same principle it's an area of the brain tissue that's had its blood supply interrupted and cells have died because of a lack of oxygen that's the same as happens in a heart attack in sepsis we get a total body attack so this is something that affects all the organs it affects the muscles the skin it affects the internal organs and People can struggle to recover from that. And the recovery journey is often incomplete and prolonged.
0: I mean, I know this is, you know, that there are huge amounts of causes out there, but I mean, you know, would you, you know, basically I I think it would be really good if anybody listening to this podcast hears this, that they, you know, should try and help the UK Sepsis Trust. I mean, how many people on average, Ron, How many people on average have, you know,
1: sepsis every day? Well, the numbers are are huge. And again, just to refer back to the WHO press release, it was actually the 8th of September rather than last week, they said that sepsis causes one in five deaths worldwide. So it affects 49 million people around the world every year and accounts for 11 million deaths. In the UK alone, this is 245,000 people every year. So many hundreds, I mean, I haven't done the maths, but it must be at least 700 people every single day affected by sepsis and 48,000 people. So give or take 140, 150 people dying every single day. To put this into context, that's more lives than are claimed by breast cancer, bowel cancer, and prostate cancer put together, happening every year. And this year, it's likely to be more because COVID has added to those numbers.
0: Yeah, which is not great. So can I just take you back just really quickly to when you actually received a (laughs) BEM?
1: Well, gosh, you can. So, yeah, so BEM for listeners who don't know what it means, it's a a recently introduced national honour. So it was in operation during Queen Victoria's reign. It then um, was removed during the early part of last century, and it's been recently reinstated. And it simply stands for British Empire Medal. So it's um, an honour that is below that of an MBE and the higher awards, but it's simply there to recognise service that is above and beyond. So the first I knew about it was a letter arriving in the post in very official envelope with the ER stamp on. And uh, well, actually, my wife phoned me at work to say, you've got a very strange looking letter that might have come from Buckingham Palace, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, I you know, asked her to open it because I, I couldn't wait until I got home. And it was just, you know, it, it's humbling. It's it's incredibly proud moment. With the British Empire Medal, there's no investiture at Buckingham Palace, but you tend to receive an invite to a Buckingham Palace garden party and the investiture's held locally. so hugely privileged, you know, massively humbled by it, and I I think it's, you know, it sounds a bit of a cliche, it's not just for me, you mentioned I created the Septic 6, it wasn't just me, it was me and three others, and it's now a slightly larger team, but it's all these people who are working tirelessly within the charity to try to help people affected by this horrible condition.
0: Yeah, I mean, when did you first specialize in this and what was the trigger for you because you know you're you're an incredibly talented guy who's got a huge portfolio of you know position you could you could have done anything wrong couldn't you really so i mean what, yeah. what the reason behind getting into you know cham- well not champion but you know trying to to, to help people with sexist
1: yeah, no, that, that's a really interesting question. So I, I'm a great believer in, in not jumping on a bandwagon. So there was no point my joining in and adding noise to an existing cause that was already being championed by others. I did not set out either to found a charity or to run a charity or particularly to champion a particular medical condition. What triggered it really was the death of a young man and that young man's name was Jem Abbott Jem short for Jeremy he was 37 when he was admitted to my intensive care unit and he died just a short time later and it became clear during his admission that there had been multiple opportunities to rescue Jem that hadn't been taken and these were in the gp setting they were in the ambulance services settings and they were within my hospital at that time sepsis was on no one's radar and this 37 year old healthy man died needlessly. And I can pinpoint the moment. The moment was when I was walking down the hospital corridor, following his now widow, Karen, and just watching her begin to break down as she walked with the nurse's arm around her shoulder. I was standing a few or walking a few yards behind. And I just thought, I'm about to take this young woman into the relatives interview room and tell her that her fit, healthy husband at the beginning of their life together, really, is going to die, and she's going to have to go home and tell Tom and Emily, who were nine and six at the time, that Daddy's not coming home. All from a condition that I knew he didn't need to die from.
0: Oh, Ron. So I can see what what has really. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you know, inspired is actually the right word, but it probably probably is the right word, isn't it? And um, something I memory
1: triggered. I, I see it as a trigger. Really, it's. it's just a moment of finding something just so unjust and so sad and if it was an isolated incident if it was a really rare condition I might have let it go but it was something that in intensive care we see every day it's our bread and butter condition and I just thought it's unjust that no one is talking about this. And so
0: that's what led you on so how did you manage to form the UK sepsis trust?
1: So, Jem died actually in 1995, so quite some time ago. And from that time, for the first decade or so, I was designing the Sepsis 6, building a team, starting to speak to health professionals, delivering education into hospitals. So, we spent about a decade really embedding this clinical pathway as a way to empower junior healthcare staff to help people who they thought might have sepsis. And it wasn't until the sort of the, the, the mid-2000s that we began to see that we could achieve so much by talking to health professionals that people like Jem were still presenting too late. So we decided at that time that what we also had to do was to speak to the public, to the media, and to policymakers. And that's when we began to set about creating the charity. Right.
0: Wow. So how old officially is the UK Sepsis Trust? So officially, the Sepsis Trust
1: was ten years old on my birthday, the sixth of March this year.
0: Oh, fantastic! Congratulations. That that's such an achievement. And I mean, you go on, you know, basically campaigning, trying to help the 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 disease. Well, you didn't say disease, but yeah, you go on trying to help, don't you? And this. This is amazing that you know we do have some somebody like you out there and your team, you know, fighting the cause because it, it's it's you know something that you know needs to be something needs to be done about it. I mean, it, it's very very true. I mean, there's been many reports over the years that you know I can think of where even children have died of sepsis you know
1: absolutely and you know we hear about the children who tragically lose their lives i mean thankfully sepsis and death from sepsis are nowhere near as common in young children particularly young children who are otherwise healthy as they are in adults but of course when it happens it is a tragedy like no other and we hear about these in the media and you know brilliant advocates like melissa mead who lost her son william you know, uh, Sue Morris, who lost her son, Sam, Jason Watkins, the actor who lost his daughter, Maud. They've done huge amounts to really work with us to put this on the map.
0: Yeah, and also, you know, are are there certain things, obviously, that, you know, the public can look for that might present themselves?
1: And I should add to that list, of course, James Tickham, who who, who lost his son, Joshua, and, you know, there, there are many, many more, Yes, there are things we can look out for. So firstly, we all know what having an infection feels like, or we know what a loved one who has an infection looks like. If something is ringing alarm bells, if things just don't feel quite right, things feel or look worse than they normally would or you'd normally expect, then be prepared to phone 111 or make an appointment to see your GP and just ask, could it be sepsis? But if you're really worried, if you think someone's in immediate danger, then there are six symptoms to look out for. And they spell the word sepsis. So we have S for slurred speech or confusion, E for extreme pain in the muscles or joints, P for passing no urine, no water in a day, S for severe breathlessness, I for it feels like I'm going to die. And believe it or not, that is the most common thing that people report once they survive sepsis, as to describe how they felt. And the final S for skin that's mottled or discolored or very pale any one of those six and these are symptoms that are agreed with Public Health England and the Royal Colleges go straight to A&E. Now of course no one's going to carry those six around in their heads um, but the symptoms lists are on our website at sepsistrust.org I'm
0: going and have a look because it is really worth knowing isn't it especially with children you can't often communicate what they're actually feeling um, compared to adults absolutely so Yeah, and and on the communication, this is
1: also one of the biggest killers of adults and young people with learning disability, so again, communication and differences in the way people communicate come into this, and this can be applied across different ethnicities, different socio-demographic boundaries, you know, we have to get context-specific messaging out there so that people can advocate for their loved one from whatever sector of society.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, just to sort of like round off, because I, I know you said you were, were busy quite soon, as uh, you know, <laughs> as to be expected. I mean, you are actually working as a clinician for the NHS as well. So, <laughs> um, yeah. um, so I mean, you actually um, were part of the 70th World Health Assembly, weren't you, with this, this sepsis plan? Absolutely. So
1: we at the Global Sepsis Alliance decided that um, what would really help us to bring attention to sepsis on the global stage was a World Health Organization resolution. So the mechanism to do that is to present the resolution to the World Health Assembly. The 70th World Health Assembly met in May of 2017, subsequently adopted our resolution after a few amendments. Now this wasn't a straightforward process, this had been well over a year in the creation. it meant that there was a call to action from the WHO to all 194 member states of the United Nations to include sepsis national action plans in their healthcare strategies. It's also meant that sepsis has been mapped against the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And now, as I've alluded to several times, Dr. T. Dross, the Director General of the WHO and the WHO as an organisation are calling for greater action, particularly data on sepsis
0: which is brilliant which is what you know we need and as you said earlier on in the interview that that is what you need more than anything else right now is data isn't it so let's hope that this will will carry forward and that you know soon that you'll be able to find some more resources to get some more data
1: absolutely and you know for anyone listening who has access to networks to individuals this is around we have life-saving partnerships with large corporates companies like Iceland Foods and BAE Systems and many many others disseminating information among their staff their workforce but also among their clients this is a simple thing that companies can do to help get the message out there and to safeguard people who are either their customers or who work for them.
0: Well, that's really good. So, it's just those two, or is there
1: a list of companies that? Yeah, there there, there is a list, and and, you know, it ranges from universities. So, Birmingham City University is a life-saving partner of ours. Through uh, retail organisations, through manufacturing organisations, they're not all huge. Some of them are relatively small, but all of them have the same drive to use existing dissemination strategies, be it messaging on pay slips be it screen savers be it events um to get the message out there to their workforce. You know one thing that Iceland the frozen food people did is to put life-saving messaging on all of their 6 million milk bottles they sell every week. A brilliant way to get the message onto the breakfast table. It didn't cost them a bean and then what we do is nurture relationships with those organizations eventually working toward being a partner charity or charity of the year and that's one of the mechanisms particularly now when it's so difficult for members of the public to conduct physical fundraising events themselves that's one of the mechanisms to help us to really bring these funds in so that we can expand our support services and start to build better data
0: so i can i mean that's a brilliant idea as well you know what a great strategy for a charity like yourself so can anybody sign up and be a life-saving company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So any company, large or small, that has a an ability to communicate internally or externally can sign up and become a lifesaving partner. Yes.
0: Right. Okay. Well, no, I think that that's a really good idea. As I said, you know, the, the more people on board, the better. Um, this this is a, an awful thing, isn't it? Really, sexism. It it just is, and it. You, Yeah. I mean, what are the causes? That's the only thing we
1: haven't really sort of touched on. I mean, what can cause sepsis? So sepsis is the way the body responds to infection. So it's always caused by an infection. Globally, around in rich countries, around half of all cases are caused by pneumonia. In poorer countries, diarrheal diarrheal Mm -hmm. illness, particularly in children is a majority contributor, that malaria can cause sepsis. But back to rich countries, mostly pneumonia, then it's kind of an equal mix, about 20% of cases each, of urinary tract infection and abdominal problems, and the remaining sort of 10% or thereabouts are largely skin, soft tissue, bone and joint infections. Most cases of sepsis are caused by bacterial infection, but as we've already said, viruses, fungus and parasites can also cause it.
0: Right, okay. Just just to know. So, I mean, yeah, we we do understand that it's caused by infection, but, you know, it's good for for the wider public to understand a little bit more about, you know, the areas that it can. That doesn't mean to say, though, that, you know, just because you contract pneumonia that you're necessarily going to have... Sepsis
1: is inevitable, no. And, And some people can have a very severe pneumonia and not develop a whiff of sepsis, and it's not known why. So it's the body's immune system that's overreacting. Some people appear more prone to that than others. We don't yet know why that is and who's more likely to develop sepsis.
0: So I suppose that will be part of your research in the future to try and sort of determine that maybe?
1: Yeah, so we're not primarily a traditional research organization. We're not going to award multi-million pound grants to laboratories to study this type of issue. But if we build better patient level data, Given the number of people, given the fact that this is hundreds of thousands of people every year in the UK, then very quickly we can start to pinpoint what lifestyle choices, what genetic backgrounds, what additional healthcare issues tend to make the development of sepsis more likely. And that will probably in the long term help even greater than traditional laboratory based research.
0: Lovely, right, okay, well that, that's good, that's good to know. Um, Not that everybody understands all the science behind it, but yeah, I mean, it, it is good to know that that is something that will be looked at, but also, I mean, what you're dealing with at the UK Sepsis Trust, you're dealing on the front line with you know how you help these patients, really.
1: Absolutely, this is about supporting them on their recovery journey. That's a combination of health professional support and peer support. We desperately need to expand that into offering self-directed online rehabilitation. But again, it comes down to resource. And without the help of people like your listeners, people like um, the companies that uh, provide us with support, which isn't always financial, as I said, it's sometimes just about communication. It's very difficult for us to expand those services.
0: Right, lovely. Well, look, Ron. Thank you very much for your time. I, I feel like I've taken too much of it. If you
1: <laughs> no worries, yeah, no, I better go to my next meeting. But uh, thank you very much for covering this, Ali. It's really important.
0: Yeah, no. Take care, and we'll check back in with you at some point to find out how it's all going.
1: Perfect. Thank you. You too. Speak soon. Bye.
0: Bye. I have installed a donate button on my Tea Time with Ali Monjack Facebook page. On my Tea Time with Ali Monjak Facebook page, I have installed a UK Sepsis Trust Donate button. If you can spare any money for this brilliant cause, please do help.